everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. The concept of a brick and mortar category totally makes sense if a customer is going to a store. They're going down an aisle, they're presented with bottled water, they choose from what's available to them, and then they move on to shop a different category. But e-com customers don't shop that way. The category is dynamic. It's continually evolving, shaped around that customer and what they've specifically looked at when retailers are using automation and personalization. And so you can't really apply that same mental model to e-commerce. You have to really think about that entire competitive set. What if I told you that you may be approaching Amazon in all the wrong ways? Many brands, especially more established ones who started out in brick and mortar, have been playing a game of catch up while trying to quickly figure out how to sell on Amazon and win. But it may feel like a confusing place to win, especially if a brand is trying to apply a brick and mortar sales approach, like winning a category, to the online platforms like Amazon, Target, or Walmart. But we all love a good underdog story, which is why I invited Andrea Lay to the show to share her secrets. Andrea is the VP of Strategy and Insights at IdeoClick, a full-service e-commerce optimization platform. Before IdeoClick, she spent nearly a decade working for Amazon, so she is coming to the table with a true insider's view and strategies in her back pocket that she's seen work on Amazon and other marketplaces. In this interview, which was one of my favorites I've done so far this year, Andrea and I discussed why brands need to accept the death of the category and start thinking about how to stand out against an entire competitive set. Doing that means repositioning your brand and winning the share of search. It means optimizing for SEO. And it also means going back to the basics of differentiation so that you're not just another option in a sea of products that looks exactly the same. Plus, we talk about selling across multiple e-commerce platforms and how to think about Amazon releasing their white label product lines. I hope you enjoy this discussion as much as I did. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you to subscribe to our weekly e-commerce newsletter at mission.org slash upnextincommerce. It's amazing. It's great. You will learn a lot of good things. Go subscribe. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles, co-founder and CEO at mission.org. Today on the show, we have Andrea Lay, the VP of Strategy and Insights at IdeoClick. Andrea, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you on too. So I was looking through your bio and I saw that you were at Amazon for almost a decade. And I'm sure you have some good juicy stories from that, those 10 years. I do. It was a wild, wild ride. I think when I started, I was employee 4,012 or something like that. And then 
when I left 99.9% of the company had started working there after me. So I was literally a dinosaur. Yeah. That's amazing. So what were high level, some of the things that you did at Amazon and are any of those things still relevant today? Yeah. I mean, I think they're super relevant. I spent my entire career there, um, you know, working on their e-commerce business you know, I, everything from kind of the early days of helping launch their price matching software, you know, the software they used to price match other retailers. Um, I worked on Harry Potter book launches back when like print books were the only way to read books. (laughs) And, um, we, we also had some things that we did with Oprah's book club. I worked on the launch of the grocery category on amazon.com and the fulfilled by Amazon program there helped launch the baby registry and built the baby category after Amazon severed ties with Babies R Us. Mm-hmm. I led, uh, I was general manager for Amazon Fresh for a little while. I, at my last three years there, probably the most exciting, um, I moved on to our Canada business and I launched 15 product categories for Amazon Canada. Uh, I ran the prime program up there. And then I also managed our uh, transportation network. And that was probably my most exciting role because it was, you know, it was certainly cross-functional. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, uh, the common thread is, and probably why I liked Canada so much in the later years was just really, really enjoy working with the manufacturer community. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the process that, you know, that they go through to really understand the customer, to build products, to address customer needs, and then to figure out how to connect consumers to those, um, you know, to the values that that they've built in their products, I think is just really exciting. And figuring out how to do that online is even more exciting. Yep. Certainly in the early years of Amazon, we spent a lot of time working with brand manufacturers and kind of partnering with them because we weren't very big back then. And we were really trying to get um, these categories built and to get customers shopping online for things besides books. And I found that to be really enjoyable because every manufacturer has a unique set of challenges. They all have, it's like a puzzle to be solved and to collaborate on. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's still what I get a chance to do today at IdeoClick and and really, really enjoy that process of kind of helping manufacturers solve those puzzles. And and we certainly don't have all the answers, but I think it's a similar process to kind of go through with each manufacturer to kind of identify where they are on their e-commerce journey and mm-hmm. then help them figure out, you know, how they're going to build a sustainable business. That's awesome. So tell me a bit about IdeoClick. How did you think about, you know, creating IdeoClick and what is it? What does it do? How does it help companies? Yeah. So we're an e-commerce optimization platform and we're a hybrid of, you know, sort of a software solution and and a services organization. Mm-hmm. And my husband actually started IdeoClick about 13 years ago. And we were both working at Amazon together at the time he left and started IdeoClick. And I stayed at Amazon for 10 more years. <laughs> and uh, I joined up with him about, it was probably like four or five years ago now mm-hmm. to help him run IdeoClick. And really, you know, it kind of came from the same place that I was talking about earlier, really wanting to work more closely with the manufacturers, help them figure out how to navigate Amazon. As Amazon became bigger and bigger, not only did it become more important to the you know manufacturer's business, but it it started to become a little unwieldy in terms of how to be successful, you know, how to make sure your products stand out and how to negotiate and operate, you know, with such a big player that's so unique mm-hmm. and lo- looks so different from brick and mortar, which is what, you know, most manufacturers have been really accustomed to for so many years. And so IdeoClick was really born out of that to help manufacturers, you know, navigate these waters. And we are a full service white glove providers. So we do everything from setting up the items in the digital catalog, writing content, running all of the automated advertising on Amazon, Walmart, Target, and Instacart. And also, you know, kind of going back 
and assisting with operations, you know, managing the chargebacks and fees that the retailers often slap on the manufacturers mm-hmm. and recovering some of those fees. So it's a, we're a full service um, agency. We're in a category called managed services. Got it. So what are some of the biggest maybe missteps that manufacturers or sellers are making on the platform where you're like, I've got all these secrets from a decade of Amazon that I know, <laughs> you know, how to prevent that or how to you know, why you shouldn't be doing that? Like what kind of things are you preventing from happening when you're working with them? Yeah, I think, you know, I think my answer would have been really different a couple of years ago, but as the, especially kind of COVID impact on e-commerce, you know, Amazon's not the only game in town anymore. And these other platforms, most more specifically, you know, Walmart and Target, Mm -hmm. but if you look category by category, there's a becoming a really big player in each space, whether it's Wayfair for furniture or, you know, Sephora and Ulta for beauty or Chewy for pets, there's a player there that's starting to represent a sizable portion of the business. So a couple of years ago, I would have said, you know, getting these Amazon foundational things right is most important. It's the biggest misstep. But I think now we would say not having a strategy across all of these e-com players is a real big misstep. It's mm-hmm. shooting from the hip. And because I think, you know, we're in a world where these retailers are in fierce competition with one another. They're price matching each other. They're very closely watching what one another is doing. And, um, and you don't want the customer to suffer as a result of that. And so having a strategy that does things like differentiating assortment or helps you figure out how you're going to allocate your ad budgets now that all these platforms have ad platforms associated with them as well, I think is, you know, that kind of shooting from the hip is probably the most common misstep that we see. Yep. But I think, you know, some of the same things still hold true from several years ago, which is just getting those foundational elements right. There are certainly like little little tricks you can do that in little like black hat tactics that will get you some more reviews real quick or help you get to the top of search. We don't focus on that stuff. You know, it's not sustainable. It's most of it's against Amazon's policies. So it's really about making sure your products are in stock, (laughs) making sure you have the correct information on your product pages, you know, making sure that you've got resources internally within your organization to support e-commerce and to drive it, making sure that you're, you know, you have good SEO and you're making use of the ad platform in appropriate ways. Yep. So now that you just mentioned SEO, I do want to talk a bit about categories. I know that you've kind of um, been on a, maybe a rant or whatever it may be for a while about around like categories aren't the way forward anymore and that you really need to optimize for search just like you would anywhere else. So tell me a little bit about how e-commerce owners should think about that going forward. Like why is Amazon not as focused on categories anymore? Or maybe the buyer is not focused there. Yeah. I think it really starts with the customer and the customer not being as focused on categories. You know, it, it kind of, I can tell a little story that might help illustrate it we had a manufacturer come to us and say, I'm like the number two or three uh, bottled water brand in the world. And so I should be number two in my category on Amazon. And um, there are a number of reasons why that thinking is a little bit out of date or, or flawed. You know, when, when a customer goes to Amazon and searches for bottled water, they don't just see bottled water. They see tea and electrolyte water and powdered electrolytes for water, um, ice, like flavored water and all kinds of things that are category adjacent, but they may also see things that are out of category. Peanut butter is another great example. If you search peanut butter on Amazon, you're going to get some peanut butter. You're going to get peanut butter crackers. You're going to get peanut butter bars. And it's not because like Amazon is not thoughtful about returning, deciding what to return in those search results, for example they're returning those products because that's, those are the products customers are buying. Their algorithms are very, very smart. 
And even from an advertising perspective, you can't win those ad slots unless there's a history of customers making that search and buying your product. Mm -hmm. And so the customer, the concept of a, a brick and mortar category totally makes sense if a customer is going to a store. They're going down an aisle, they're presented with bottled water, they choose from what's available to them, you know, and then they move on to shop a different category. But e-com customers don't shop that way. You know, the category is dynamic. It's continually evolving, you know, shaped around that customer and what they've specifically looked at when retailers are using like automation and personalization. And so you can't really apply that same mental model to e-commerce. Um, you have to really think about that entire competitive set. And so that manufacturer who thought he should be number two or number three bottled water brand, you know, his competitors on Amazon aren't just bottled water, as we stated, stated their tea and electrolyte water and all kinds of other things. So his competitive set's different. But also because e-commerce platforms and more specifically Amazon is a frictionless, it has frictionless entry. So manufa any manufacturer can sell on Amazon. The competitive set is going to look a lot different than in a brick and mortar store where you have like a buyer making assortment decisions. So mm -hmm. whereas there might be five or 10 like nationally recognized brands in a brick and mortar store and maybe a couple of local players and like private label on Amazon, there is a huge long tail of um, brands that are not nationally distributed, maybe only sell on Amazon. So that competitive set looks entirely different. And I think that's like um, a big misstep that manufacturers make is kind of applying that same mental model, trying to look at like market share and category and ranking category versus, you know, moving their thinking to the e-commerce world where, um, where there's really not, there's really no such thing as a category. Yeah. Yeah. The only time I can see categories being helpful is if you're in the browsing mood where you're like, I'm going to be having a baby. And I just want to kind of see what, like, what do you buy for babies? You know? So like, if you're in that browsing mood, which maybe isn't always high intent to buy more, just kind of looking around and maybe you buy, or if it's a curated category, like here's the gifts for father's day. I have found those kind of helpful where I'm like, I don't know what to get my dad. And on the homepage is like, here's a whole, you know, maybe it's not a category, but it's a whole curated collection, pick one and go. And that's where I think some of these category specific players win over Amazon. You know, they, they do encourage more browsing because they are curated assortment because their browse and data are really clean and it's a, it's a more enjoyable experience. But if you, if you did try to shop by category on Amazon and, you know, the data shows that like more than 90% of customers just go and start searching, you would maybe not like what you found. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an overwhelming experience. It's not curated in any way. And then the categorization data is bad because Amazon doesn't use it. Yeah, You know, they're building a search platform more than they are building a, a browse platform. And I, I do think these other e-com players are, um, this is where they can win over Amazon, right? Is they make the shopping experience more enjoyable, they encourage browse and they curate the assortment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We just had on a company called The Fascination that was about, you know, discovering new DTC companies and being able to browse around and but once again, that's like highly curated versus just going to a category and being like, well, let's see what's here today. Oh, there's like a thousand things. <laughs> no thanks. So if we're in, you know, a search world now where you need to optimize for that instead of just worrying about being the number two water bottle, you know, showing up in a category, how should a brand be thinking about that? Like, how do you optimize for search? Are you bidding on keywords? Do you have to use just Amazon platform? Um, or is it more of like a yeah. holistic approach of like, got to have a good product, have to have you know, good reviews and like all encompassing. Well, it, it's certainly, it's a whole package deal. I mean, there's not like one thing that drives all of the success, but I do think that, you know, really kind of understanding that customer and the process we go through at IdealClick and manufacturers could go through a similar process on their own is we identify these customer search groups. 
you know, identify the customer that you're going after and the product that meets their needs. And then from there, what are all of the search terms that that customer might search when they're looking for that product? And then bouncing that against if there is any search velocity, Amazon publishes that data. So it's knowable mm-hmm. to know if, if a search actually has any volume associated with it. And then that's your customer search group. And then you're, we're able to kind of measure progress on achieving placement and search on that customer search group relative to the competition. So the way that we're doing that is in a brick and mortar world, this would be like market share. Like you'd say, what's my, what is my, what are my sales over the entire category of sales? And in e-commerce, what we do is share of search. So we say like, what are all of my positions, you know, kind of within those first 20, 30 search results relative to the entire set? And obviously there's some weighting associated with that. Cause like, if you're up on top, that's more valuable, more drives, more sales than if you're like down at the bottom or, you know, the customer has to scroll a lot on their phone. So, so measuring that share of search for your customer search group relative to the competition. And it does a couple of things that I think are a lot, a lot better than a brick and mortar market share model. The first is it very quickly identifies who your competitors are. So if you didn't know, which most manufacturers don't know who their Amazon competitors are. And that's because manufacturers, when they're checking on their products on Amazon, tend to search for their brand name. Mm -hmm. So of course, you're going to get your products. But if you take a step back and instead of searching for your branded facial moisturizer, you search for face moisturizer, face moisturizer, you're going to see an entirely different picture of who's turning up. And so this allows you to really measure your, you know, your percentage of that customer experience, essentially kind of going back to the customer. So I think it, it gives you a, and in addition, it gives you like more of an upstream look at what's about to happen. So market share is like, it already happened, like your sales occurred and now you're measuring as a percentage of a total. This allows you to kind of affect what's going to happen in the future. So it's an upstream, maybe like an input metric mm-hmm. versus an output metric. And then lastly, the share of search is measuring like a finite amount of the first or second page, which is really as far as the customer is typically going on like a basic search. And and that looks a lot different in terms of number of brands than what you might see in like a finite category on a brick and mortar shelf. So there may be more brands, more types of categories represented and, you know, measuring that as a percentage of a customer experience really allows you to develop some advanced strategies against those competitors. So Is Amazon providing the tools so you can see your share of search or are you kind of doing this for your customers? Or if I was by myself trying to be like, who are my competitors? Would I be going through the first three pages and being like, here they are? Like, how do I figure out that share of search? Yeah, it's really tricky. So um, we have software that does it for us and share of search is kind of our proprietary offering that we provide to our clients, but it's not, it wouldn't be hard to do a very simplistic view of this, which is identify like five terms that you think matter for your product run a search and count how many of the first page you have. Like it's, it's not a difficult activity to get more nuanced about it and track it over time and track all the competitors and all of that obviously needs some software, but you can do a really simplistic look. And this is often what we do for a manufacturer who is um, like considering working with us. We'll take a look, we'll do a share of, a quick share of search audit and do exactly that exercise. You just, what are the five terms that we think matter? How much of the page do they have? And who else is showing up? And you can really quickly see how you fare relative to those competitors, not just in the position of search, but like how many reviews do you have versus the competition? What's your star rating? What's your price point look like? What does your packaging look like? Like it's a very fast view of, um, you know, how you compare in in this marketplace. And, you know, there are some really aggressive brands out there. Like we have, we have clients that come to us and they say, you know, I'm, I'm private equity backed. I am a new go-to-market brand. Like no one has ever heard of them. I have no distribution and I want to get, 
I want to get distribution in Costco next year. What is your plan for me? And we have a program for that. Like those, it involves a really, really large marketing investment. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but that's what these traditional manufacturers are up against, right? Are these really upstart brands who are only doing pure play Amazon and really trying to make a presence for themselves. And while they feel like ankle biters, when you're look, just looking at the Amazon search results next year, when they are in Costco, they're no longer ankle biters. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I mean, which is what's great about it. How do you think about when someone comes to you and says they want to be in Costco? I mean, I've read amazing articles about how Costco, you know, will make sure that your product, like their product always has to be slightly better, but they'll also still work with you to make sure that your yours is selling as well. So one example is like Starbucks. They, you know, made sure that their coffee, Costco brand, Kirkland brand was a little bit better than Starbucks based off whatever criteria. But then they also made sure that Starbucks was also, you know, being sold or whatever the brand name was in a way that it wasn't cannibalizing. But Amazon feels a little bit different when they come out with, you know, white label versions of things. Like you see that and you're like, oh crap, like there goes my product. Look out. (laughs) Yeah. So like, how do you, I mean, that's the one thing that I think sellers are scared of now is Amazon just copying you. Like, how do you view yeah. that? Well, I think you you touched on a couple of things. The first is the beauty of a value-added retailer like Costco for a manufacturer. Like in that model, in the value-added retailer model, the retailer takes responsibility for the inventory, for the promotion, for making sure it sells, for the profitability, um, for curation, like deciding what the product should be. All of that happens on the retailer side. And that's true across kind of traditional retail, um, whether you're talking about an Ulta or a Nordstrom or whomever, like they own that responsibility. In marketplaces, the responsibility is all shifted back to the manufacturer. So they decide what assortment they're going to carry. They decide how they're going to price it. They have to promote it and market it. And it's a really different model. So I think that's kind of one interesting thing about what you were talking about is that you know Costco does that. And when retailers kind of complain about Amazon or say, you know, how much of their business Amazon's stealing. I think it's important to remember their, to lean onto their, lean into their strengths, which is providing this value add for these manufacturers Mm -hmm. and reducing a lot of that burden and and usually producing a higher profit margin for that manufacturer because they don't have to take on all of that work themselves. On the private label front, it's really interesting what Amazon's doing there. You know, some of the categories like consumables are getting up to about 10% of the sales being um, Amazon private label, which mm-hmm. is really in fashion, I think was maybe even higher than that. As a part of Amazon's antitrust hearings, they had to release that data mm-hmm. and you have to kind of dig around to find it, but it shares the percentage of each category sales that are driven by Amazon private label. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, manufacturers will often come to us and they'll say, oh my gosh, my life is over. Like Amazon just launched a private label in my category. But I think really it just, it's an opportunity for the manufacturer to really be more on their toes. And a great example of that is if you, um, if you take a look at Amazon basics, they have a luggage spinner. Mm -hmm. And if you search luggage, luggage spinner, um, suitcase or whatever, you see Amazon basics and you see Samsonite and a bunch of others. And the basics has like, it's like a third of the price and it looks just the same. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think what's really interesting here is that Samsonite has an opportunity. If you actually click through to the product pages, you still can't really see a difference. But as a part of a article I was writing, I then went to the Samsonite manufacturer's site and actually like specked out what's really different about it. And there were enormous differences. It was like a TSA compatible lock. It was, you know, it had all of these extra features that weren't even coming through on the product page that certainly weren't coming through in the title and the search results and the hero image. 
And so I think, you know, Amazon's going to usually come in at this lower price point and this more value driven offering. And for these manufacturers who have better bells and whistles on their products, like talk about them, <laughs> like make sure you're, mm-hmm. I mean, it's classic differentiation stuff. Just the way you differentiate looks a lot different in an e-commerce marketplace. Like you have to do it through the images. You know, you have to make sure that the, the bullet points really display that, you know, you have to have a title that kind of calls out something about the feature that's really unique. So I don't think that I mean, I do think Amazon's seeing a lot of success with their private label because they are able to, you know, leverage their own platform and they know it best. But through Share of Service, we've also identified enormous holes in their strategy from a marketing perspective, like entire categories of keywords they aren't bidding on. And then you can get really granular and really go after those holes that Amazon's left wide open. And I think it's because I think the reason Amazon has those holes is they're using an algorithm to drive their private label. Like it's not people back there saying, okay, like we got to bid on these five keywords. These are the ones that matter. And here are the features, you know, that everyone cares about. And then I think if you don't have a point of differentiation against Amazon's private label, it's time to take a real hard look at your product. Because if it's that copyable, it's not just Amazon private label that can copy it. But also, you know, if you often look at the differences between like the the top selling product and the category uh, soups a great example you can search chicken noodle soup on amazon and amazon has totally innovated the packaging and the format of the product to address all of the customer complaints so like canned soup is terrible online it dents no one really likes to eat anything out of a can anyway um, <laughs> so campbell soup you know showing the canned traditional format you know, you look at Amazon's chicken noodle soup, it comes in a reclosable box, which is one of the top complaints in the reviews about the Campbell's soup, which is like, I can only eat half of it. And then what do I do with it? Yep. It, it ships in its own container. So they're all nicely, tidily packaged into a box. So it doesn't dent or get damaged in the shipping. It's way more profitable for both the retailer and the manufacturer. So I think there are some areas where Amazon's really innovated on the behalf of the customer and it should be keeping manufacturers on their toes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's such a great point. I mean, so many things to unravel there thinking about you need to be different and leaning into your differences. And the whole point of having a product is to have you know a great story and showcase your features and like, don't get complacent. I love that. I mean, I could see you even being able to look through the data and find opportunities just like Amazon is of like going through reviews and seeing, you know, what is someone complaining about? Oh, so many people keep talking about this and creating a whole spinoff product. I guess Amazon could do the same, but Seems like there's a lot of opportunity in the data that's already there too. There is. And I think um, I think this is one area that large established CPGs really struggle. And it's because they have so many brands and they carry so many products. You know, if you're a nutrition bar and you only have 20 items on Amazon and you're growing really fast, it's really easy for you to look through your 20 item, the reviews on your 20 items and kind of come to like develop some insights and say, okay, you know, five people are complaining that they think it's a little bit too sweet or 10 don't like the sugar content or whatever. And you can re kind of adjust your product in your next product development cycle. But if you're a large established CPG working across so many brands, so many different categories, I did my air, I did air quotes there. I got it. <laughs> but if you're, you know, <laughs> if you're, if you're a large established consumer brand, maybe you've got 1,500, 2,500, 5,000 items. There's no scalable way to do that right now. And I think that's an excellent, you know, business opportunity for someone to get into, which is like really analyzing some of that consumer feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I actually just had a student, an MBA student from Northwestern reach out to me through a connection wanting to talk about like that very business idea. She's like, what about all the customer reviews? Like who's got data that's mining that? And I'm like, no one. 
I mean, there are some players out there um, like Reviewbox and and I think Profitero and maybe even Salsify to some degree that allow you to access them because Amazon doesn't even provide them. Like you have to just look at them mm-hmm. and, and develop some basic insights and maybe some word clouds and things like that. But there's so much more to be gained from those reviews that would really help inform product development. Yeah. I mean, we've even heard that from so many of our guests talking about the long tail reviews are where the insights are. I think we had um, someone from HP and then Stitch Fix, of course, talking about like that's the ones that you need to dive into to see if someone's providing paragraphs of data to tell you how to make your product better. Like you better be looking at that and seeing are enough people saying that to pivot, you know, whatever product you're working on. Yeah, you really need some like natural language processing kind of technology to to really make the most of those reviews. But I mean, either Amazon has it or they're just really good at it. Because if you look at, I mean, I can give I could give so many examples of this. But if you search short sleeve wrap dress. Mm-hmm. They're, they have a, an Amazon Basics. It's like a top seller. I even have it. It's a great dress. Um, I'll have to pick that one up. <laughs> relative to like the top three other results. I mean, the, you go through the negatives on the other top three results and it's like, it's too short. So it's not work appropriate. It wasn't, it doesn't like wrap all enough to be, um, you know, to be able to sit down in it well enough at work. Um, it doesn't come in extended sizes. Like those were the top three complaints. And Amazon's comes out with an offering that's like, more conservative, slightly longer, comes in extended size. Like it, it immediately just addressed all of the things, all of the negative reviews about the 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 other top three sellers. So they're they're either they've either got something that's helping them do that or they're just really good at it. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that also just plays to the point of needing to be diversified and be on all the platforms. I mean, I look at Walmart right now and so many influencers are showing me stuff from Walmart. I'm just even thinking like I've bought rugs in the past month. I bought an egg chair from Walmart, all because these influencers are talking about stuff at Walmart, which also I think has increased quality a lot and they are becoming a larger player. Maybe their tech and backend still needs a little bit of work and out of stock issues and all that. But I do see them coming up strong. Target also, like how do you advise the companies you work with to think about you know, all the platforms and be on all of them and optimize for each one in a unique way? Yeah. And I think that's really the million dollar question because, you know, up until a couple of years ago, those other e-com platforms didn't really matter as much, mm-hmm. you know, up until last year, they didn't even have ad platforms. Like yeah. the, the world is moving and changing so quickly where I was, I actually was just giving an internal speech right before this to our employee base. And I was like, you know, retail, if you really go back is, is meant to be a really simple business. It's like a manufacturer has a product, they sell it to the retailer and the retailer resells it. Like it's a, you know, the people who grow up with that model, it's a relative, relatively like uncomplex or simple process. But if you just look at what's happened over the last five years, I mean, even five years ago, you had to be advertising on Amazon and search engines like Google mm-hmm. and maybe even Facebook at that time. Now there's like social live streaming, there are social media networks, and you have retailer ad platforms. Like the level of complexity that these manufacturers are faced with right now. And if you think about the ones who lived through all of this, like they didn't, they weren't attracted to this field because it was a technology field. They were yeah. attracted to this field because it was really based in sales and, and product. And, and so the level of complexity that they are faced with is an enormous. And I was on in a share group the other day where a manufacturer called, you know, in our space that we're in, like the service providers, it's super fragmented. Like mm-hmm. it's a ton of point solutions that help these manufacturers be successful across all these different platforms. He called it a Frankenstein. It's like they, and this company that was presenting at the share group was working with 35 different service providers mm-hmm. from data and analytics to execution, to strategy and execution and strategies like where we sit. 
to, um, you know, operations and EDI and inventory management? And how do you like allocate inventory across all these platforms? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's no, there's certainly no like perfect answer to, you know, how do you think across the different e-com platforms? But I do think it's, it's important to really think about like, where's your start? Where's your customer? Like, is your customer shopping on Walmart, Target, and Amazon? And most of them are because most of them are cross shopping. Where else is your customer shopping? What category specific players should be really important to you? And then, you know, where are you getting like a good, where, where are you most profitable? Mm-hmm. And where can you get a good ROI? And what platform do you use for what? Like for um, Target, you know, it's a little bit more about that curated assortment being on trend with merchandise and and being associated with targets kind of give it like gives your brand a little bit of a boost. Walmart stands more for value. Like Amazon is about assortment. Mm-hmm. And so and obviously, you know, price and all of that. But I think really aligning yourself with the marketplaces that um are core to like your brand's identity feels really important. So the customer, you know, what's consistent with with your brand. And then in terms of like the investments to make across them, a lot of the fundamentals are pretty similar. So mm-hmm. that's good. Like you have to, you have to have those, you have to be, you know, retail ready. And, uh, you know, the ad platforms are similar, but different in very important ways. And so I think when you think about how to like allocate that, those investments, um, then it really comes down to like profit and, and what you're trying to accomplish. If it's awareness, if it's maintaining your position in the market, um, you know, whatever it is. Yep. Yeah. I always think about the opportunity that exists for manufacturers of creating a piece of tech that allows them to plug in all the import inputs that they have to deal with. I mean, even when I'm having companies come on saying, oh, we have, you know, we feature D2C companies on our website and they have a back-end place to log on and, you know, like, okay, that's one place. Okay, then they're on Amazon and then they're on Walmart and, you know, they're trying to figure out their own inventory stuff. There's so much stuff for them to keep track of that it feels like there's no unifying source right now for them to be able to get a holistic picture of like their company as a whole. No. Um, in fact, I got like this urgent call yesterday from this guy that this colleague of mine that I've worked with in the past, and he's teaching a course uh, at Harvard right now called the future of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm in one of the, one of the courses and nice. he called me yesterday. He's like, okay, I'm preparing for this thing. I'm making a deck. I'm showing this like crazy environment that we're in with all these providers and like all these different things that these manufacturers have to keep track of. He's like, who are the service providers who can help them unify it? And I was like, there aren't any. Yeah. It's not because you didn't look hard enough. <laughs> yep. I always think it that. I'm like, who's out there? It doesn't exist. I even asked my it guests, I'm like, what do you do? And they're like, oh, it's just hard. I'm like, Someone needs to solve this. <laughs> Someone needs to solve it. I mean, it would be really a really big job. But you know, even just in like, just take like logistics and like three PLs. So there, you can outsource your warehousing and your purchase order fulfillment either direct to customer or to retailers to a three PL. There are. I was just just did this as a part of like an industry trends report. There are um, tons of three PLs. Seventy some percent of them have fewer than five customers each. So it is a super fragmented industry. It's so fragmented, in fact, that the new trend is for a 4PL. And a 4PL is a broker that helps you manage all your 3PLs. I have not heard about that yet. Isn't that crazy? So like, that's like a new cottage industry is 4PLs. And that's like the broker that helps you manage across the other PLs, I guess, the other 3PLs. And that's just in logistics. Yep. Yeah. And it's so it's a it's a really challenging space. And I think what ends up happening, you know, the ones that end up suffering or right now, I think the manufacturers are suffering because all of these, this complexity, like deteriorates their profit margins. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then they also have to advertise on the retailer platforms now too, which is like new yeah. and pay and pay for that. But I think in the future, eventually, if no one figures this out, the customer is going to have to pay for it because the prices are going to go up. Mm-hmm. Like the manufacturers can't shift from 5% of their business online to 50% of their business online, which is a much lower margin business for them and not raise their product costs. Like that, I just don't see how that happens. So hopefully someone will figure it out. Yeah. Do you see any manufacturers doing it well right now where you're like, oh, I just, you know, I talk with someone and they are doing it this way. That seems like it's streamlining at least a piece of the process. It might not be all of it, but any stories there that highlight someone doing something really good? You know, there are a few folks who are doing a really nice job designing for online. Mm-hmm. So that's that's first and foremost, like make the packaging and products such that it's low weight and it, sh- and it ships economically. Cause that's like number one. I mean, if you can't do that, if you're trying to still trying to sell dry bags of conventional dog food or cat litter online, like that you have no future in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we've certainly seen like Clorox do some really interesting things in the, the litter space um, at Purina is doing, they're doing like lightweight litter, you know, so there's some great examples of companies designing for online. So like, how do you build an e-commerce, sustainable e-commerce business? We'll make sure that it can ship well mm-hmm. um, or the retailers aren't going to want it. And, and it's going to, you know, you don't have a future in it. So I think there's some good examples of that. Clorox is also doing, um, they did a Greenworks product a while back that instead of selling like three bottles of spray cleaner, there's one bottle with like two tiny concentrate refills. Yep. So, you know, it's less water, it's less waste. It's like more sustainable packaging. I'm certainly seeing some really cool stuff from some upstart brands. There's one called Ethique, which does uh, shampoo and conditioner bars. So that's again, less weight, ships really well online, stores well, doesn't leak. You know, there's some, and then we're certainly seeing a lot with like liquid IV and, um, you know, all of the electrolyte powder drinks. So moving from buy, selling it as a bottle yep. that has water in it, that like you can't ship to, to powder. So some interesting stuff on designing for online. I think there are some companies who do a really nice job, like aligning their org structures to support e-commerce. You know, I think some good examples of that would probably be, you know, L'Oreal does a really nice job there. P&G has a pretty solid and smart e-com department. You know, there are a few uh, CPGs who do a really good job there. And then, you know, I think the one that everyone seems to struggle with though is logistics. Mm -hmm. It's, It's especially the larger CPGs. They're built to scale products and ship truckloads. Yep. And not necessarily like fill direct customer orders or ship like super small quantities to all these little Amazon warehouses. So I think logistics is really has really been hard on the CPG industry, uh, e-commerce logistics. Yeah. And I only see it getting harder and worse. I mean, I'm thinking about my interview with Dom from Fast and him talking about, you know, one click checkouts where they'll batch the orders on the back end for you if you, you know, buy, buy, buy all in separate transactions. But that's still also encouraging, you know, one-off orders that maybe you wouldn't have had otherwise that maybe brands aren't used to, you know, someone just coming in and buying one shampoo or something because normally there's limits. So I only see it getting more difficult as technology gets better and, you know, they figure out how to make things easier to buy. It just makes it harder logistically. Yeah. And I'm starting to see, I just feel like retailers, e-commerce retailers um, have got, have really come a long way on this in the last couple of years, probably to compete with Amazon. But, you know, I'm st- I can't remember which retailer site, I think it was Wayfair. I was shopping on the other day and they, they suggest that they're like, batch my orders. You can select it. It's like defaults to batch my orders. So they all show up on one day. Or you can check the other boxes, no, ship them each as they become available. And Mm -hmm. Amazon's been also doing that because, I mean, in e-commerce, well, at least on Amazon, the average order is one. Yeah. 
And I think that's what Dom even said, that Amazon's been doing this for a long time. It's that most e-commerce companies aren't doing that. So that's why on Amazon, you can always go and hit buy now, buy now, buy now. And you don't <laughs> and even think about it. Yeah, they'll try and figure it out. But like, you don't even have to worry about a cart anymore. And that seems to be the way of the future. But yeah, I'm just thinking about these smaller brands who are trying to, you know, up and coming, trying to get their foothold and then being like, oh my gosh, customers are, you know, expecting to be able to just hit click buy for one thing. And I wasn't prepared for that. You know, we'll certainly continue to see Amazon grow. I mean, they had an amazing quarter, but also I think we'll continue to see customers, um, you know, really being less loyal. Mm -hmm. And I think that because these other retailers are really upping their game. And if you look at, there was a, a study that came out that showed like the top retailer app downloads this in 2020, Walmart was like right there under Amazon. And granted, Amazon has a huge install base. So, you mm-hmm. know, we need to take it with a grain of salt. Wayfair was on there, Wish, all these other retailers. And so I think the pandemic has forced us all to shop more online, but also due to product availability, shop more across retailers. And, you know, as a result, we have discovered that the shopping experiences on some of these other retailer sites are more favorable to the types of products we're looking for maybe even more fun or more curated or whatever it is that you're looking for. And I think the retailers are starting to figure out how to be more efficient. You know, remember when you used to have to go get your credit card every time you placed an order online, like they're all saving it now. I mean, stuff that we kind of take for granted because like Amazon set a really high bar. Yep. I love that. So I know we don't have a ton of time. So I want a quick touch on Bezos. I know he just recently stepped down as CEO from Amazon. So I want to hear your hot take on you know, what does that look like for Amazon of the future? How do you see that yeah. changing things? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's really, in, well, first I should probably say, I don't know Jeff personally, <laughs> and I don't have any inside information. Oh I've, man. I've, I've been, uh, I've been gone from Amazon for five or six years now, but you know, I do think um, if I were him and knowing what I know about him and as, you know, as the fearless leader, you know, he's, he's an inventor. Like that's what he's really good at. He's really good at inventing and disrupting, you know, industries and inventing on behalf of the customer experience. And when I look at what he has really had to focus his energy on the last couple of years, I mean, even pre-COVID, you had the antitrust, you know, investigation. They were under intense scrutiny for their treatment of their warehouse workers, counterfeits on the site and fake reviews, um, labor unionization efforts. Here in Seattle, they've been under just a ton of intense pressure for contributing significantly to local elections. You know, our local government put in place a headcount tax just to kind of stick it to Amazon. I mean, it's been really intense here. And, you know, also a lot of discussion about their their role in increasing housing prices and driving Seattle's homelessness epidemic. I mean, the stuff that he's had to deal with, a super public divorce all of that stuff. And then, you know, you layer in COVID and, and all of the operational, you know, complexity of that, that he had to deal with. Nothing in there is inventing. Yep. And if I were him, I would not only be exhausted because I think the best way to exhaust an inventor is to tax them with a bunch of drama. Yeah. And so if I were him, I would be exhausted and I'd be really bored. Like yep. <laughs> there's no inventing in there anywhere. You know, they've, they've made some really interesting inventions I guess, disruptions more, I, I think of them less as inventions, more of disruptions as it relates to transportation. And, you know, in their earnings call yesterday, they said half of their packages now are being delivered by their own fleet. Wow. Incredible, right? Yeah, that's like, really They're incredible. a huge transportation company now. Yep. And, you know, they'll probably license that out and just walk out, but there's not a lot of inventing 
happening. Now it's all about scaling and scaling, managing under scrutiny and really going head to head against some super fierce competition for ad dollars and for, you know, customers. And so if I were Jeff, I'd be looking at the future and I would just be like, not interested. Yeah. (laughs) So I think that kind of speaks to why he would step down. I think timing it with going out on a high note with the Q4 Mm -hmm. earnings being so, um, you know, so just astoundingly positive probably makes sense. You know, it's interesting. I don't know a lot about Jassy, but I think he's, he was the CEO of AWS for a very long time. And, you know, he's really good at scaling a business and um, scaling a business against, you know, adversity or fierce competition. Like if you Mm -hmm. look at what they were up against with Microsoft, and I think they even like filed a lawsuit against one of the, for like an RFP that they didn't feel like was handled correctly. I mean, he really has gone head to head. And I think that that's maybe saying, signaling that that Amazon's going to be a bit more about scaling and a little more about competing and a little bit less about inventing mm-hmm. um, going forward, which is, I mean, maybe that's the stage that they're in. Yeah, cool. All right, well, with a couple minutes left, we have a quick lightning round. Our lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I'm going to ask a question, but this time you only have 30 seconds or less. Usually I give people a minute, but you're so quick. I'm like, you can't have a minute. <laughs> You get 30 seconds. I'll do my best. All right. What one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? I'm going to go logistics. I think the ability for other retailers and D2C to, um, you know, prevail against Amazon or compete effectively again with Amazon are, is going to be their ability to ship fast and, and to see for us to see some kind of consolidation and maturity in that industry. Yeah. Love that. If you were to have a podcast, which you're about to, what would it be about? And who would your first guest be? So our our podcast that we're going to have is uh, Melissa Verdick of PackView, who is a competing agency for us in the in the e-commerce advertising space and myself. And we're going to be doing kind of a hot take on e-commerce current events. And, you know, my job as VP of strategy is all about staying current on e-commerce trends and news. And um, it's even hard for me to keep up. There's so much happening right now. Yeah. And so we wanted to really try to provide a value to the manufacturer community of helping keep them current and tell them what they need to know. And then more importantly, kind of tell them how we, what we think it means for them. Yep. Love that. I can't wait to listen. What's up next on your reading list? On my reading list? Oh gosh. Um, well, I have, I'm working, well, I guess on my reading list is a lot of research because I'm trying to write a book. <laughs> I'm a busy lady. I'm trying to write a book about e-commerce and really transitioning our thinking beyond that physical aisle. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of some of the things that we talked about today. So a lot of my research right now is, um, is reading some other, you know, pieces of thought leadership around that. And in fact, on my immediate reading list is I need to read a case about Unilever for my class with Harvard on Friday morning, (laughs) Friday morning. And it's all about Unilever and how they like have successfully transitioned um, to like kind of an e-commerce framework and mindset. Oh, I have to come to your class too. That sounds good. (laughs) Awesome. And then the last one, what one thing do you not understand today that you wish you did? I I think a couple of, a couple of areas. One is that as a manufacturer, thinking about like, when is the right time to invest in the the most forward thinking e-commerce technology, which in my mind right now is live streaming. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know a lot about live streaming. I'm learning more about it. I'm certainly, you know, watching some of it and trying to participate in it. It's so nascent here in the United States, but in China, it is incredibly powerful. And in this Harvard class, um, they had a woman who's like a, a super influencer 
in China come to the class and she live streamed in the class and she was selling Harvard t-shirts. And she, um, I think she sold like, I don't want to say like hundreds or thousands in like a minute. I mean, it was insane. Yeah. And and then they projected her, what was on her phone to the screen and we got to mm-hmm. see it. And it just, it really blew my mind that we're yeah. in such a different place as it relates to e-commerce. So I, I don't understand it super well. And I, and I want to understand more of it so we can do a better job of helping our brands kind of transition. Yeah, that's a really good one. Definitely one I don't fully understand either, but I know it's very different market there. So maybe, yeah, people shop differently, but any insights bring them my way because I don't get it either. <laughs> Cool. Well, Andrea, it's been a blast having you on. I hope we can bring you back for round two in the future because I feel like I could probably keep going on for an extra hour if I didn't have a meeting in a couple minutes. Um, <laughs> but where can people find out more about you and IdeoClick? Oh, yeah. You can um, you can follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, you can visit my website at andreakaleyconsulting.com. I write and speak and post very frequently about e-commerce. Um, and you can find um, IdeoClick at ideoclick.com. Amazing. Thanks so much for joining us. It was a blast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you'll probably also love our e-commerce newsletter. You get it delivered straight to your inbox every week. Sign up at mission.org slash upnextincommerce. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.